Welcome back to another episode of Sketch Nerds, where we break down sketch comedy. What works, what doesn't work, what we like, what we don't like, and why. Today, we have another special episode. E.K. and Showa were in Greensboro, North Carolina, for the North Carolina Comedy Festival, and we sat down with the hilarious duo Unstoppable Failure to chat about a sketch from The Muppet Show. You can find information about this podcast, as well as the sketch we are going to be discussing, at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. Joining me are Shoa Appleman, I'm Elizabeth E.K. Kemp, and today we're happy to have on as our special guests, brothers Al and A.J. Schrader of Unstoppable Failure. How are you guys doing today? Oh, good. Yeah. It's early. I'm tired, but happy to be here. Yeah, we are just coming off performances at the North Carolina Comedy Festival. Yeah. You guys were great. Thank you. Fun show all around. You but guys were obviously better. No. But... <laughs> Well, since since we're there, can you guys tell us a little bit about how you all got involved in that? And just you are North Carolina natives, but uh, you know, how did you kind of come into sketch comedy? So I got started through improv, which I think a lot of people do as the gateway drug kind of of comedy, or at least scenic comedy, uh, at the Idiot Box where the festival is located. Started taking classes there in college. And then I wanted to write things, and that's when I started talking to my brother, who I knew was a funny guy, about writing some stuff. And I was there, <laughs> and I could just, yeah. And then he gave me an opportunity to uh, write things, so I was always looking to do that. And I'm not really an improv guy, though. I'm really just a uh, sketch. Uh, I'm interested in dramatic scenes. I was a theater kid, so yeah, I came from that more so. Yeah, and Dungeons and Dragons, I think we both oh, yeah, actually yeah. is really where it started <laughs> for us. We've not explored that connection of storytelling and comedy, right. but yeah, it's definitely there. Yeah, we yeah, the Mi'kmaq ups uh-huh. in Dungeons and Dragons is really how we <laughs> just started riffing off each other. So then once Al started writing and doing comedy stuff, we were part of a number of larger groups that as time and various goals whittled down other people. <laughs> We find ourselves kind of as a duo now. So how does it work? Al, do you take the first stab at it, and then you edit, or do you riff and then write it down? Well, it depends on who has the premise. Um, We don't really do a lot of, I think, like brainstorming sessions. A lot of groups will kind of get together and brainstorm stuff, and I've done that with other groups. But with me and AJ, it's more we just write things. We're very selfish. Yeah. (laughs) We're both pretty prolific as far as just, like, that's what we use our free time at our day jobs doing. Like, if we have some free time, we might be like, oh, I just got an idea for a sketch, so I'm going to write a first draft of it. And then either sometimes we do, like, an official rewrite if one of us, like, after we read it is like, I have an idea of how I I think this could be better. (laughs) A lot of times we end up rewriting it as we start rehearsing it if we think the premise is good enough to take to the stage then uh, the other person's sort of rewrites will come in, you know, when they when we start rehearsing. And, yeah, lots yeah. of little ad-libs in the yeah, rehearsal process. Yeah, lots of ad-libs, lots of cuts, too. We A lot of yeah. times we realize that a line is, another line's already doing the same function in the sketch, or it just feels like the whole rhythm of the sketch feels like it got a little bit slowed down by a certain line, and we're like, can we just get rid of this? We're kind of... We're kind of always looking to cut down our sketches. Right. Like, yeah, can we just, philosophy can wise. we, uh, can we fucking act this rather than yeah. say it? Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely something you don't know until you start rehearsing a sketch. Uh, how much scaffolding you have is what, yeah, we tend to call it. How much script scaffolding you have of the little, like, nose, yes, okay, well, yeah. you know, like that. You're probably just going to get across to the audience with your, Facial expressions. Right. And then yeah. we want to have as unstable of scaffolding as possible by the end. Well, yeah, that's to the danger. Yeah, let that fear sink in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know one of the things I love about your sketches is that they're inc- they're incredibly creative. The premises are incredibly creative. But it's misdirection, but with a very tight logic. Like, I can track how you got from A to Z, even if A to Z are completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but I'm curious then, when you start with a premise, how much does it, does that disconnection, is it there from the start? Or does that evolve over time as you're writing and you're talking about it? I think the disconnection probably evolves uh, as we build it out, because we'll discover often a better premise or yeah, a second premise. A more or, specific premise maybe or, or a game, just a yeah. game of the sketch that we want to kind of explore. Like 
I don't know, maybe we were trying to make some political or personal statement originally with our premise that doesn't quite get through and the doesn't have a, the universal yeah, truth that yeah. of just us being stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Stupidity always trumps a I don't even know what I'm trying to go through. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think a lot of times we also discover like really fun character games. It's about having fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like with it's it. more that you find something that's fun you want to kind of within the premise. That. Yeah. So that it feeds into the original idea, but then the character game, if you insert it earlier, like once you've discovered it, it does create that little bit of misdirect at the start because you're like, oh, I'm a, I'm establishing this character. And then once the other character comes in or whatever, that's how you get the more the full scene. And a lot of people get so focused on what's this character doing? And that's it's a little kind of, for me, one of the differences between theater and sketch is that at the end of the day, you'll sacrifice some character for the overall premise in a sketch, right? And yeah. in theater, like, the character has to be true a lot of times, but you'll give that up to, like, hey, here's my little twist. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are brothers, obviously, mm -hmm. and you, you must have, or I'm assuming, rather, you have a really good feel for each other's sense of humor, sensibilities generally. How much are you fighting or how much conflict right. is there as you're writing uh there's not much like you said we kind of that was probably one of the reasons that we started to do a duo more so than work with the larger groups because it was a lot easier for us to quickly get what the other one was going for yeah kind of and uh i don't know also just paraphrasing in general for a script the more distance you have from like the writer of a script a lot of times the more you feel like you have to stay true to exactly what they wrote and uh, yeah. me and AJ, we definitely <laughs> nope. never had that kind of respect for each other. Uh, we were like, I get what you're going for in this line, so I'm going right. to say it in my words, and it's probably going to feel more, more natural. More natural, authentic. yeah. But at the same time, so like overall, we're like, yeah, we think the same. So we get the big concepts mm -hmm. real fast and are on board. And then what we fight about is the stupid shit that oh, yeah. does not matter. Of like, no, I, this needs... A three second beat, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we will and derail an entire rehearsal. Like, <laughs> yeah, did I, did I say fuck coven, like, <laughs> in a whiny voice there? Or, yeah, I got really in my head about that, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that sketch, uh, with the fuck coven line, uh, because. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it was because I feel, felt like he wasn't criticizing me enough, actually, during the rehearsal process <laughs> of that sketch. Uh, and I was like, AJ, I don't know. You haven't said it. Right. Aldon like, changed you, a lot of his characters' lines. You didn't need to fix as much. Yeah. So. And then he was upset that I was not defending my original lines. <laughs> I was just much. very suspicious. I was, like, uneasy about it. I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. So it went, went okay. Yeah. yeah. So. But yeah, we'll lose hours about stupid, stupid shit. <laughs> but it's, we still have more fun doing that than we would like, I don't know, whatever else you do in a person's life. Uh, so. <laughs> Wasting time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Getting really nitty gritty about our sketch comedy. So. so you're a two person duo. Does that inform how you come up with your sketches or does that, I guess it must, does that, does it help to have that kind of added layer? I find it easier. So we were a part of a five-person group for a long time. And in the larger group, you know, we writing, you're like, oh, I want to give this person a turn kind of stuff. And it lets you be really selfish <laughs> as a duo, which is often nice in writing because when you take care of yourself, you take care of the other characters too. Like, And when there's only two characters, both characters are fun like, and distinct. Whereas a lot of times in larger scenes, I think two or three characters end up serving the same role and you feel right. like part of the chorus. Plus you get to, as a duo, you never leave the stage. Like there's not a sketch you're not in, uh, you know, occasionally, but it develops a nice rapport with the audience and also lets you play yourself occasionally. Like you can yeah. step out of the sketch more easily when the audience has that oh, I relate to this in the same way that stand-up has that like conversational quality with the audience. Mm. And the whole, when you're both on stage, the whole like energy of the show uh, can really get steamrolling. Yeah, and I found that the two-person is kind of, it was good to go back to that two-person basic and realize that every character really had to have a necessity in the sketch. I think I've 
gotten better at writing more than two person sketches since I kind of went back and started to focus upon writing the two person sketches. Right. Because when I have a sketch now that I write that requires more than two people, it doesn't feel like I'm trying to give people parts. It feels right. like it actually this, requires yeah, it. Like, yeah. This entity needs to be here in the sketch. Yeah. Because, so. yeah, now that we're used to like trying to get rid of other characters, and mm -hmm. when you can't, you're like, Oh, this is this character is important. Like, <laughs> this needs to be more people, and you know that might be something that we would film with a friend or or something of that nature. Do you, do you find then that it's kind of forced a greater level of creativity then, or given you some freedom to walk away from some more traditional characters and formats? Like, you're two guys, obviously. I mean, there's nothing to say you couldn't play female roles, but it kind of forces you beyond roles like the nagging girlfriend right. or or mm -hmm. those those tropes that you see. All too often in right. sketch comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've discovered too. We're not really our strength is not characters. Uh, <laughs> we so we tend so it tends to be like sketches about heightened versions. Heightened versions. Yeah, so. that's a good way to say it. Yeah. Uh, so we've definitely played into that more and more with our writing. Uh, a lot more sketches we've done have us as ourselves. You know, just the simple. Why am I even trying to come up with names for these characters? I should just write AJ and Al and. Yeah. Yeah, all our office yeah. characters have the same names. All our kid characters are always Billy and Timmy. Uh, so, but having the constraints, like the the framework of the two people, does like create a lot of creative outlets and possibilities. And I, it does get us away from some of the overdone types. Uh, and because we're brothers, I think too, like our relationship is, you know, it's not a, about relationships <laughs> most of the time. Especially, I think, now that we're in our 30s. Like, when we were in our 20s, you know, we were probably a little more stereotypical. And you grow out of it as writers, you know, because we, yeah, we're two white cis guys that, <laughs> you know, weren't always, you know, we've always tried to be evolved, but you speak to your own experience a little bit. So it was hard to be completely evolved in the aughts in the early 2000s. Right, you right? do make the mistake of, like... <laughs> yeah, we, not, did, we did some bro-y stuff. Yeah, yeah definitely. The, the and, yeah. female characters were not as fleshed out as they should have been. Mm -hmm. And again, it was an all-guy group, so a guy was playing the females, and, like, you know, the drag is always the joke, like, in and of itself a little bit, and that kind of a cheap joke in some ways. And your show last night, you did a good job of doing jokes for people in their 30s. It reflected, like, who you were. Roth IRAs, hilarious, yeah. signing mortgages. Like, those were great, and those were on point. Nothing yeah. is funnier than mortgages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just. That's what oh. I've discovered. It's just the nonstop riot. Yeah. The, the profound comedy of loads and loads of debt. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone can relate to it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one one of the other things that you guys, especially as, as we're recording a podcast and we have listeners all over the country, all over the world, in Ooh. fact, okay. we want to make sure we get. I want to see those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> there are eight. There are right. eight people. <laughs> Accounts. <laughs> we send them cards. It's a very personal relationship. Um, no, one, one of the things that you guys have available online for people who are interested in learning more about the kind of voice that you have is your Game of Thrones animated series, Crows on the Wall, which seems like it's it's kind of improvised first and then animated? Or what's what's the process behind that? So it is written first, then we get real loose with the script as we record so that we like can talk over each other and be stupid. One of our yeah, get that natural kind of cadence. Yeah. We like I yeah. think for both of us one of our favorite television shows is always sunny in Philadelphia and their ability to just talk over each other <laughs> in a natural way, but still like have that roadmap Wait. to get back to. So with animation, you're telling me that you sort of ad lib the recording and then you put the art in after on top of it. Yes. So you're the artist. I am primarily the artist Aldon storyboards at first and then I do the, the, the nitty gritty, but there's a lot of programs that make it, easier now especially for the kind of like stiff animation style that we're doing in that what's so for the scene oh sorry yeah name the program oh yeah what are you what are you using let's let's plug some animation yeah. software and educate <laughs> our audience of eight because adobe needs more plugs uh <laughs> they're struggling a little bit Strug struggling yeah. little design company yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the character animator from the creative suite is what we use primarily because it does the lip sync for you once you've done the drawings 
which is important. <laughs> well, nice. don't sell yourself short. There are a lot of drawing cuts in those. Uh, yeah. yeah, but it's it's fun. Uh, but it is that program makes it almost like you're manipulating a puppet. Okay. Yeah. Rather than doing full animation. Well, and so in that one, they have more than two characters, or you insert a couple additional characters. Mm -hmm. Is that because of the nature of the animation, or just when you do the script, you feel like it calls for additional characters? Yeah, that was just, we felt it called for additional characters. We wanted to have our two kind of, uh, you know, sketch comedy center uh, characters that are basically just us if we were Night's Watchmen. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, so, you know, we want to explore the world of Game of Thrones a little bit, so we got to get Jon Snow in there. <laughs> yeah. And neither of us does a very good Scottish accent. Uh, <laughs> neither so does John Snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, so we got a friend of ours, uh, John Chenoweth, to come in and do uh, John Snow for us. And uh, he was a good straight man uh, for that sketch. And with those two characters, they're both a little bit, you know, kind of, they're going to have the fun of the sketch. So we need someone to maybe not have fun, get the sketch going. Yeah. Well, so we we first saw you guys at Philly Sketch Fest. I'm reminded by your T-shirt sitting across from me, which is an incredible event, mm -hmm. um, especially for comedy lovers. But obviously, we're here this weekend for the North Carolina Comedy Festival. So can you guys talk to us a little bit about your involvement in that event and, and just generally about what the scene is like down here? So the sketch scene is pretty small, especially in Greensboro. It's us and our friends, like our larger group has now splintered and everyone has kind of their own project. But that statewide is kind of how the scene is. So like there, we've got really good friends with a group in Charlotte and there's a group in Asheville. And so it's more spread out than, you know, being in a major market where you see a bunch of different people in the same city. So the festival is a great way to actually, oh, for this weekend, we actually get to see each other's stuff and hang out and party. And the festival's really recent. This is only the second year of the North Carolina Comedy Festival. There uh, was a festival in Chapel Hill that had like a similar role, but the theater got into trouble because as a lot of theaters have in like, you know, not always the best business practices and things like that. So that kind of fell apart. And Jenny and Steve, who are the owners of the Idiot Box, have always been hugely supportive of the community and all the different comedy art forms and took up the mantle. So Jenny does the bulk of the production herself for this two-week festival. And then I help out with the sketch stuff because I've been to enough festivals that aren't sketch-focused where sketch kind of doesn't happen. Because it's, 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 a, it's a weird theater comedy hybrid that, you know, a lot of people don't get and tech doesn't happen and it confuses a lot of producers i think it scares them so to have someone involved in sketch to say hey i'll i'm gonna help with the sketch part <laughs> so that it's you know takes that off the plate a little bit and then i also help with the website and things like that All right, so AJ and Al, you want to tell us about the Muppet sketch you brought us today? Oh, yeah. So I, I chose a Muppet sketch because I feel they are an under-recognized uh, part of sketch comedy history. A lot of people get their first introduction through Sesame Street sketches, and they are sketches. And the Muppets have a long history in that they were, you know, they were part of the original SNL cast, Henson Creations were, but then they really started to flourish when they got their own show. This sketch in particular is from the Harvey Corman episode of uh, Carol Burnett and Blazing Saddles fame, but it has nothing to do with him. It's just uh, Kermit and Fozzie, who are Frank and Jim, and you know, also Bert and Ernie. So one of my favorite comedy duos, really, of all time. And it's presented in this way, in a classic comedy format. Great. Here's a clip. You and I are going to tell the world's funniest joke. Uh, this is all spontaneous, unrehearsed, right, Froggy? It's unrehearsed, yes. Okay, okay. Now, frog of my heart, yes. you will just wait until I say the word here. When you hear me say the word here, you will rush up to me and say, Good grief, the comedians are bare. Good grief, the comedians are bare. Check. When you say the word here. Right. Gotcha. Okay, here we go. Ready? Okay, here we go. Now then. 
Hiya, hiya, hiya. You're a wonderful looking audience. It's a pleasure to be here. Good I'm... grief, the comedians are there. <laughs> you just said here. That was the wrong here. Which is the right here. The other here. So the whole concept of this is that it's a show within a show. But before we even explore that meta component of it, what what in general makes puppets funny? Let's let's go back to basics. Oh. Why are puppets funny? <laughs> they can I mean they it's the same with animation. You you have so much freedom to do things that humans can't, right? And it's that flappy arm thing they do when they get frustrated, <laughs> of which this sketch has a high number, which is, yeah. Yeah, and you know you're being silly from the get-go. You know that the frog isn't talking, but great puppeteers, really, there's a quality of life in them. Like, Kermit is his own character. And so, yeah, it's it's a show within a show. Because <laughs> it's a, a commedia dell'arte. Like, they become... These archetype mm, yes. characters. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, yes, yes. I was a theater kid too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so so in the interest of this, there the education component of this podcast, when we do get terms like that thrown around, we we do want to pause and say, like, can you just delve into that a little more? Commedia dell'arte. What what are you talking about? What do you mean? So it's a classic theater form in which the show within the show and the, the characters were kind of archetypes of the this guy always plays the fool. And so he's the fool when they break from the scenes. And then in the scenes, his character also is a different character, but still plays that fool role. Like you find the characters who are then going to be typecast for the various productions. So I I, I do want to turn to Shoa here very, very quickly. We're talking about puppets. Shoa, I know, has made some puppets in her comedic career. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, you are correct. Um, and it's not something I actively share, but every time people come over, they're like, oh, you have puppets. Sorry, I just outed your puppet collection. <laughs> it's okay. I, I suffer from the same affliction. Well, and puppets are great when you're a kid because if you can't get someone to play with you, now you have your cast and you give them your characters. Right. And then as adults, they're fun too because if you're if you're more prone to writing, which I am as well, now you put the puppets up and it's, it's almost – easier because people are going to laugh there we've been trained now to love puppets but back in the snl days that was new and they weren't trained to love it but now that everyone's been trained it's an easier more comfortable way to get into it but it's also harder because you only have really like text to work with or the writing's got to be pretty strong right or the premise has to be strong or like you said the show within a show you have to get them to identify with someone on the stage right and it is like instant costuming right yes when you put on the puppet it's a full character like you don't have to get back there and put on your beard and everything like this character you see them and the physical qualities can convey a whole character like you and you get to choose it you get to choose every little bit of it so if you're into micromanagement (laughs) well that is interesting you're kind of yeah you're actually literally creating the character as you create you get to be god the character yeah but (laughs) like when you're like Building these puppets, do their voices start to speak to you? Kind of like <laughs> as you create the mouth, like, ooh, this is what this mouth is going to sound like. Uh, for you and just Oh well it's it... always it's my voice, right? Like uh-huh. your puppets, your voice. But and it's funny you brought up the hands. I didn't think much about the hands, but then when we're doing the edit, the hand motion is the thing that gets the laugh where right. the hand slowly goes up. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, there is physical thing you can do with a cut thing, but you also can't cut away with the puppets really. So switching between puppets and live action is tricky. Right. Um, so there are they're a good boundary, so that makes the writing process more fun, too. They're magical. They're, yeah, they're great. <laughs> uh, well, it's anytime you see a, a duo like this, especially in, in the framing of this one, it's hard to get away from an Abbott and Costello right. conversation. So most obvious, who's on first, um, mm-hmm. which, which de- also mines the comedy from wordplay, uh, speed and confusion. So... What about it here works so well? And in general, why does that work so well, do you think? I think because everyone can relate to it and also feel superior <laughs> to it in a lot of ways. Like, usually, like, uh, I, I see what's happening. But also, everyone's been confused by something, like, stupid and gotten really frustrated about it in their life. And, it, yeah, it makes pointed conflict, which is, of course, the the soul of every scene in any medium, anytime you tell a story. So it's just two guys or two people just having a conflict. And it's like this sketch in particular is like, 
So pure. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of about two guys. It, well, it is about two puppets trying to trying put on to a show. Publish, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it speaks to sketch comedy about how, you know, you can control it. That's kind of the the good thing about it. But right. I don't know. The fun of it's it, going to be and what you can't control about it. Yeah. It's the simple but impossible task. Yeah, which yeah, that's a good way to say it. I need to get more terms so I, <laughs> so I bumble a little less which with my verbiage. <laughs> it, it, which is a, like a subset of type of sketches in a lot of way. And this also has the wordplay. So it's like if Mr. Bean was talking, it'd be like this. Because it should be so easy, right? Because it's such a simple task. But then you're like, yeah, but it's understandable why it's not. And that relation, I think, drives the comedy. And this is also a running sketch they have. So there are a couple bits where Fozzie gets up and he does his stand-up bit. Normally his conflicts with the audience. Those right. two Dead guys. And yes. And then it's fun to see this twist on it where instead of it's those two guys, now it's his buddy and he can't win. He just right. continues to be an unstoppable failure. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Hey, <Eight> block. <laughs> yeah, and Kermit is just one of the greatest straight men of all time. Right. Uh, oh, yes. Because his frustration, again, it's those puppet arms. His frustration is just so comical. Right. And like that puppet in particular, even of all the Muppets, he does frustration perfectly. His face can just sure. collapse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally collapse. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, he's such a simple puppet. He's puppet. He's just basically a sock puppet. Yeah. More so than most of the other Glorified Muppets. sock puppet. Yeah. So, so you said something interesting that I want to come back to, which is making the audience feel smart. Uh-huh. So how often do you guys find that that's what you're aiming for? Do you want to challenge the audience more, or do you think it's better to make them feel smart? Or does it just depend on the sketch? I think it depends on the sketch. You want to let them in, at least. You know, there's definitely different philosophies of that and how much you want to punish the audience. <laughs> uh, yeah. Punish isn't the right no, word. No. How much you want to trust them. Yes, like, trust. No, that's not yeah, the right trust, word trust, No, but trusting There's, the audience is really a, what's important. And so I think they feel smart if they have a line in, right? You can do these abstract things, but then you give them a bridge back to get on board. And then the surprises are... But, ah, you got me, right? <laughs> uh, so, Shoah, you just mentioned Statler and Waldorf. Interestingly, another comedy duo that right. appears next to the comedy duo of Kermit and Fozzie. So they're often used as a button or a tag to the sketch. Um, Muppets, sometimes not Muppets, or a reference to them is included. So what makes that bit work, and how is it working differently from Fozzie and Kermit? So they have, you know, some ageism yeah. that's in <laughs> the misunderstandings. Um, and also, you know, as performers, I think uh, you particularly like to see the, the, the heckling, like you can you relate to Fozzie and you feel sorry for him. But you're like, that's ah, not happening to me. So again, that little bit of superior. <laughs> yeah, well, they're also a way for your the writer to get out any self-doubts they have about the sketch, right. kind of steal the thunder away from whoever is going to heckle them. And yeah, and like do the, all the little things maybe you saw when you were writing the sketch that you were like, uh, you know, this deserves to be lambasted a little bit. So. Right. It lets you be sillier in the thing before. Yeah, you feel freer because you're like, well, Stadler and Waldorf will, uh, they'll, they'll tighten up home. all the yeah. loose screws there. Uh, they'll at least say, yeah, we know it was stupid. You know, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, because Fozzie is a challenging character to write because you're trying to write bad jokes, ultimately so that you can have the payoff of the guys in the balcony yell at him. And right. writing bad jokes in a good way is, it's trippy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Jim Henson, I think, struggled with, um, he didn't want the Muppets to be a kid's show originally. Right. He wanted it to be an adult show. So adding those two characters also helps remind us that this is these are adult jokes and right. adults are responding to them. Because you can do bad jokes for kids and it's okay. Yep. <laughs> kids are great. They'll laugh. Um, but if you want to keep it in the adult run, you have to then... You have to show people not appreciating you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's the adult experience, yeah. <laughs> but are Statler and Waldorf then, do you think that they are legitimately good comics? Like, is that the contrast with Fozzie, who is deliberately written to be deliberately bad? They are earnestly 
your funny grandpa, right? Like if they were to get on stage, they would fail and you would feel bad for them, but they have so much like bravado. They're old man jokes. They're like dad jokes that you're like, ah, yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. They wouldn't know that they did a bad job on stage. They'd be like, yeah, (laughs) we nailed it. But they do get to, I mean, they're, they're roasters. So they would do well in a roast. So if you like roast style comedy, <laughs> they're parasites. They're Friars they Club, yeah. <laughs> and they keep coming back to the show. Yeah. So they can't hate it that much, right? They, they're honestly the biggest fans of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I hate the Real Housewives of right. New York, but I don't watch. I watch it every week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was not one of our original discussion questions, but because Shoa, you brought it up, I think it's important. The nature of that writing for the two audiences, but almost concealing that purpose, right? You see this in in Sesame Street. You see it in The Simpsons. It's, yeah, it's friendly for a 12-year-old or younger. But if if you know some of those references, you know that's that's simultaneously a very sweet, innocent joke, but also filthy. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So have you guys, I mean, I'm curious if you want to explore that a little more or what the challenges are there or if you've ever tried it writing clean and dirty jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, back to puppetry, almost if you do want to make it for adults, I've found that that's the goal, um, to make it clean and dirty. And then if you, making it clean is harder than making it dirty. And that's what we oh, run yeah. into because you, or like if you're struggling with something, if you throw out a certain word, then the audience laughs because they understand it. Right. So I don't have anything. It's hard. It, it <laughs> How is. about you guys? Yeah. Uh, So in improv, I used to do, we always had, like, the early show was clean. And it it was the, but, you know, it was family coming, so you wanted to still appeal to the audience. And it is a balancing act. You know, you have innuendo that you think you can get away with and, or, like, big characters who are, because younger kids will appreciate a character. They'll appreciate someone going whole hog and because there's so much emotion all the time right so to see an adult display emotion is a release to a kid in a lot of ways because we close off so readily so i think when you come in with big characters you can like entertain kids with the character even if you're talking about politics or something of that nature but not necessarily dirty so that you don't scar them for life or anything uh and (laughs) I, I definitely got better. Or do. Yeah. <laughs> They're gonna it's gonna happen anyways. Yeah. It makes for great comedians. Yeah. And there are tricks you can use. So like um for intercourse, you would never simulate like humping, but you come out with a cigar after right. something and uh, now like the kids don't know, but the adults know. Right. So there 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 are tricks to make <laughs> Those it work for both just got yeah. It yeah. On. Just the little subtleties, yeah. And I think when you force yourself to write clean for at least a while, you get better faster because, mm-hmm. you know, you throw the, the crutches out. Well, I, w- I will go ahead and make a plug for my favorite joke that kind of tracks this. It's not even dirty humor necessarily, but it's that Simpsons episode where they're buying the pool and they build it in the backyard and it's a shot for shot recreation of the barn raising scene in Witness <laughs> which if you're an if you're a little kid you have not seen the movie right. Witness most people like who are now like millennials have never seen that movie but god like watching that and recognizing what it was i thought that was hysterical right. no one else in the room got it and you know it just made me feel smart and right. superior yeah. well like, there's so many movies i watched watch now that I like oh the Simpsons did wait no this Simpsons. did that Simpsons, Simpsons did it <laughs> but yeah because I uh Jim Henson's dinosaurs when I rewatched it I'm like oh there's so many things I didn't get when I was just oh that that baby's fun right <laughs> yeah. like so you can have those again those like stupid big comic relief characters to appeal but and then in the background talk about bigger issues yeah. Well, it's, I mean, you can watch it, some of those shows as an adult, and it's almost a completely right. different show. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's why my parents enjoyed it, too. <laughs> yeah, it's a devastating show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my parents were really digging, yeah, the comments about uh, environmentalism <laughs> and <laughs> how the planet was being destroyed. Well, have you seen that seven-minute mashup where they take the boss from Dinosaurs? 
and the things he's saying about the environment and unions and how they reflect our current yeah. leadership. Oh, I haven't Which, seen yeah. that. I'm going to have great. to check that out. We'll link that in the yeah. liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's great how sad it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll get back on track here. So so one when setting up a Chekhov's gun in a sketch, like the eventual promised Fozzie punchline here, what should you do or avoid to find success? And first of all, let's let's define Chekhov's gun. And I'm I'm going to turn to AJ here. So it's everything Chekhov said. Everything in the scene has to be necessary too. And like so, if there's a gun hanging on the wall in the first act, by the third act, it has to go off. Right. So we're promised that this joke is going to reach completion. Right. The comes up, sets up, we're going to tell the funniest joke of all time. So everything is leading to this eventual punchline that you know is supposed to be some sort of release and completion. Uh, so the anticipation for that creates this ticking clock that has an urgency to it and helps drive things from the get-go. We love that you use the term Chekhov's gun in your pre-questionnaire because then we, um, I have a master's in English, was like, oh, now I have to Google what Chekhov's gun is. <laughs> And it was really educational and we learned in addition to the gun, which is a great example of it, it's just about making sure everything in the scene matters to right. the scene, yeah. which is something you've, you've already shared as part of your writing process, every word, every second of pause. Yes, so thank yeah. you yeah. for it's also us. It's also how you can tell who the killer is in a murder mystery yes. right. um, <laughs> before anybody else can and make yourself seem really smart to all your friends. Like, you always know who the killer is. Mm -hmm. That's because she had a sister who had no function in the plot. <laughs> right. like, so, yeah, so she, she probably did it. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's oh, like every Columbo episode yep. everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's extra anger if that person didn't do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. You, well, yeah, you could have down. a red herring, but then they're going to be like, yeah. Yeah. We, we shouldn't get too far into it. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to guess, but... <laughs> but there is an anticipation yeah. of you knowing what is coming, right? And also, just because it's Fozzie, you know it's going to be bad. So you know he's roped Kermit into something that he can't get out of, that he is trapped until it's done. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's it's interesting then that we're talking about it as a Chekhov's gun because it seems like this this thing that has to happen. But on the flip side of that, there's there's also the anti-comedy component mm. of Fozzie, which is that he's not funny. Right. And that even though you have that tension built up, you know the payoff just isn't going to be worth it. <laughs> Right. Well, there's so much satisfaction from something that you you're you expect and you know is happening, but then when it happens, it happens in a slightly different way. And that's what this sketch does so well that you know that someone's just going to say here a lot just while they're talking, but you're just thinking of the regular here. But then they make sure to use that no, he's always going to use different uses of the word here. Sure. Like he's going to use all the different synonyms from it. And then it also ends on another synonym joke with the bear. Uh <laughs> So yeah, it sets up. So you see it. It's like you see it coming, but when it when it gets here, it's like a little different than you thought it was, and that's uh, brings you joy. Yeah, makes you clap you like a baby. Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like peekaboo. <laughs> the homonyms good, and then yeah. bad. <laughs> and it's really homonyms. Yeah, yeah. Homonym humor. <laughs> homonym humor. Kermit's reaction is such really the payoff because yeah. you're on board with him. So to see like your own. Face as if you had heard that joke of like, I, I put in I put in this effort for that. Great, great. Well, he starts so high, he's so right. excited. Yeah, really owns the line. Yeah, he's like, yeah, well, I'm gonna help you sell this. <laughs> when you guys are writing, how do you identify what those elements are that even if it's early on, you realize shouldn't be there, or that you need to do more with? within the context of a sketch. Definitely. Basically, how do you edit stuff? Right. <laughs> oh, a lot of times it's when we forget a line, actually. Right. <laughs> and yeah, we run is. over and we're like, uh, oh, that felt you fine. forgot that, but it felt so fine. Like, and we should probably up. leave yeah. it. Yeah, leave it's it on the gone. floor. And yeah, don't pick it up again. Right. <laughs> on a similar vein, how, how many times do you run a sketch or do you, I guess, rehearse sketches before going live? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it varies sketch to sketch. And when... So if we're doing a whole new show, we'll probably we'll probably have like six rehearsals of the sketch, probably before ish, uh, and you know a lot of just sitting. We meet every week to like at least talk about sketch, even if we don't 
accomplish anything. There is accomplishment in just like talking about, you know, well, how do you think this stuff's going? Or if we're tired of something too, like that informs it in some ways of like, oh, I guess this one's probably not ready. <laughs> uh, but when we do a new sketch in a smaller set, which we often do because there's not a huge market in Greensboro for people to come out to see sketch comedies shows all the time. We often will sandwich it between two things that we know work so that we can get a good, honest judge of how that sketch is filling amongst things that should work if the audience is on our side normally. And then just the fear of being in front of people, I think, helps edit too. Like we make little choices in the actual performance where the adrenaline or whatever just kicks in. Oh, I didn't know you had the fear. It didn't come through in the performance. <laughs> it really didn't. I have the fear. So it's oh. good to hear that. Yeah, well, it's the it's the energy you use it, and then yeah, right. you use it to kind of build your confidence in a weird way. That um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can speak more about how it works. It's definitely sort of an intangible uh, feeling. I call it the fear. <laughs> the excitation. That's a more positive connotation. It's like, would you rather be on stage or in the deep sea in a shark cage? Right. <laughs> like, given any chance if someone said, like, right before I have to go on, like, uh, you don't have to go on, I would always feel a relief. <laughs> and then the next day I would be regretful of it, of like, you know, ah, you should have done it. You should have made yourself get up there. Like, even, you know. Because, you know, big audiences are less scary to me than small audiences, for sure. You but. can't see the faces. Right. The disappointment. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you want to know if what you did translates. Yeah. Right. It's always a little frustrating when you have a small audience because, you know, I'm not really going to get a good sense of whether this worked or not. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I used to tour colleges with uh, another group. And those are going to be some of the worst shows you're ever going to have in your life because, like, no one's paying. They paid for it. The college paid for it. And the kids paid for it. But they don't know they paid for it. So they're not invested. And in like people will just wander in and out. A lot of times there's they just want to see things happening at the college. Like, hey, we're using your money. Things are happening. And so you'll have a, like a two-person audience that they paid $3,000 for this show to bring you in. And it, you're in front of a Burger King like in their food court. <laughs> And so once you do enough shows like that, you still you still have the fear always, but you also know, ah, it's not going to be as bad as that. So let's <laughs> so have some fun. So when you're, we're talking a little bit about how you guys structure your shows, but, you know, it's always important to mix up sketches, different lengths, different games, different cast sizes. I mean, you have some, some limitations there because it's just the two of you, but thinking about your own shows and thinking about how the Muppets structure their shows, there's that same mix of stuff. Right. So how do you feel like this, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the broader context for this bit. How do you feel like it fits into that episode? And then more broadly, how do you, how do you guys think about how to structure your shows? So this sketch is in the Muppet show, you know, it's such a strong, clear sketch and it's there. It's, in this episode, it was their last real sketch. Uh, the only thing that came after it in the episode was their most sentimental moment, which is uh, halfway up the stairs. Uh, it's a song from Kermit's nephew, like sitting on the stairs singing about how I'm not at the bottom, I'm not at the top. Halfway from, up the uh, stairs. E.B. White poem, yeah, I think. it is. The guy who wrote Charlotte's Web. So I think, you know, in terms of structure, for us, you know, you always want to have a strong close, right? And that's part of this general sketch flow. So you, something you know you're going to work comes at the end. This classic duo. Yeah, put it at the end. It's going to kill. I uh, got that wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not A.B. White. It's the guy who wrote Winnie the Pill. Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Milne. Uh, Milne. Yeah, A.A. Milne. Yeah, I, yeah. I never like pronounce it right. Yeah. Because <laughs> I remember because Christopher Robin was the original right. narrator, is the narrator of the poem. And then it's Robin. Is Kermit's okay, nephew. I'm yeah. sorry. I got into really into my head. Yeah. About it. <laughs> so I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying. <laughs> but uh, so we always try to start with something strong and also like relatable to let people in. Uh, then our weirder stuff is going to go like halfway through the second <laughs> part where we either have them or we don't at that point. And we always try to put something really strong in the middle. And yeah, but that is the thing we argue the most about, actually. It is. Show, it's order. show order. 
where do these sketches go? How are they going to work together? What's the flow? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, for this, you know, they had to give, like in SNL, the, the host weaves in and out too. So mm-hmm. to take them out, they actually, I, I was wrong before. There was one like little blackout right after this sketch to get the host back in for his final, like I'm the host beat. But yeah, I think structure of a show is so important in terms of how the audience is ultimately going to accept it. It's like a mix CD. You start yeah. strong, you do yeah. it up a notch. Yep. Yeah. And, and if you get it wrong, it. she'll never love you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to, I, I'm always, I, I'm a visual person. So if you were to map it out, would you say it looks more like the energy and the structure looks more like a like a straight sloping line, or is it more like a a sine curve? curve? Yeah. I definitely think a little more sine curve like a roller coaster yeah i think is what you want kind of you want to build up and then well yeah and then highest moment of most fun yeah and the comes near very near the end like you're like your penultimate sketch and then you just want to make sure that you leave them with something that they're really gonna like and kind of can remember you because the last sketch is obviously going to be the one closest to the rest of their lives going forward (laughs) So where you come in and slap That's what something I out of yeah. <laughs> Al's hands. <laughs> well, callbacks are always kind of an easy. Yes. And because yeah. then they're like, oh, we were a part of that. We have this inside joke with the audience, right? That they're like, oh, this was the experience that no one else got to be a part of in some yeah, ways. Yeah, callbacks tend to feel the best for me for ending. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy troupe Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. Visit badmedicinecomedy.com for info about live shows, workshops, and t-shirts for people who love comedy. So just final thoughts about Muppets. Any any other things you guys want to talk about, close us out on that conversation? They're great. <laughs> we like, like Muppets. Muppets. <laughs> Gosh, we really need something more than that, AJ. No, I, th- I think you were you said it in unison in a very monotone, creepy way. It's like now I see that you guys have a room in a basement somewhere that's just nothing but Muppets. And that is actually true. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a basement. It's, it's a split level. It's so a well-lit it's... room. <laughs> we got to be able to see all the puppets. With a lot of Hummel dolls mixed Stare in. Stare into their dead eyes. Yeah, I mean, they, they let me into comedy. They introduced me to comedy comedy and so they're always near and dear to my heart the Muppets in many many different ways (laughs) all right well as our guests uh why don't you come up with a rating system for how we're going to talk about the Muppet sketch today all right so since it's since it's Fozzie Bear I'm going to do like one to five wakas (laughs) one waka being one waka being bad and five wakas being great Okay. Now, are, is it a Fozzie Bear bad in that it's bad, but so bad it's oh, good? Man. No, yeah. Walk, I mean, I think Fozzie actually normally deserves like five walkers. But For in the world in which he inhabits, you know, it's one walker. But that's the comedy. It's I, my mind has been blown. It's a circle of walkers <laughs> by my own. We're talking about <laughs> we're talking about Ouroboros of walkers here. More, more walk of good. <laughs> more walk of good. More walk of good. It's walk a bad. Walk a bad. <laughs> so I, I personally <laughs> give it walk a walk a walk a walk a walk a. I give it as well. Walk a walk a walk a walk a walk a. I'm just to be different. I'm gonna go the other way. Give it one walk a. <laughs> But on the Fozzie Bear scale of Waka, which really means it's five Wakas in real comedy terms. So I think it's great because it's just, it speaks to so many like basic key comedy principles and it executes with such incredible efficiency. So maybe it's three Wakas or 13 Wakas. I don't know. I don't know. It's the roller coaster. We're lost in a spiral of Waka ratings. Show up. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna give it 1,990 walkas just Fair. because it's ahead Fair. of its time. He was parroting suffering stand-up comedians okay. well before <laughs> that became mainstream. So 1990 walkas. Yeah, yeah. Waka breaks all rules of space and time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Sketch Nerds. A special thank yous to our guests, AJ and Al from Unstoppable Failure for being on today's show. Where can our listeners find you online? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at, you know, those things slash Unstoppable Failure, as well as our YouTube channel, which we host our web series, Crows on the Wall. Al, what's Crows on the Wall about? Uh, Crows on the Wall is about two men stuck on a 400-foot wall of ice. Uh, there they must defend their fantasy realm against hordes of zombies and dragons. Uh, it has, has a tangential relationship with George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. <laughs> Wait, would it be spoiling anything about your series or Game of Thrones to ask, do they survive? It would be spoiling it, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> George R. R. Martin hasn't decided yet. <laughs> it's in the last book, you uh-huh. swear. <laughs> And for our North Carolina listeners, can you tell us a little more about where to go to learn more about Sketch and get started in Sketch? I would definitely suggest the Idiot Box Comedy Club in Greensboro, where you can take classes on all forms of comedy, improv, sketch, and stand-up. I teach there occasionally, so, you know, take my class and I get paid. Listeners, please like, share, and subscribe. If you have a sketch that you're interested in us breaking down, please send it to us. We'd love to do that. You can find out more about Sketch Nerds and Bad Medicine at badmedicinecomedy.com backslash sketchnerds, where you can also find links to the sketches we discussed today. You can find this podcast and previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. For Unstoppable Failure, Shoah Appleman, and Elizabeth E.K. Kemp, your host for today, thank you for listening to Sketch Nerds. This episode was produced by Isaiah Hedden. The closing music tracks were provided by soundtrackforeverything.com. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. The Sketch Nerds podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy group Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. For showtimes, videos, and funny t-shirts, please visit badmedicinecomedy.com.